So I made two mistakes that day. One, I didn't know the name of the place that I wanted to go. And two, I went the wrong direction to get there. You see, somebody said, go to the Overlook. You know, you'll, you'd really like that. So I thought, oh, I'll take the kids and Emma to go see an Overlook. And we're in Kentucky. We're in like the deep Appalachia or Appalachia, depending on how you pronounce it. We're like, we're like beyond Dukes of Hazard kind of a place. Like we're like as far as you can go. And I made the mistake of hearing Overlook and going, okay, the Overlook. Well, just, we're going for the Overlook. The other mistake is I thought, let's just go. They said it's east, and so let's go east. When you're following a river through the bottom, you know, of the mountains, east means nothing because it becomes north and south and it becomes every direction possible. So I, I head east. I tell the family, oh, yeah, it's just east. <laughs> so I'm going east. And about 30 minutes later, I was like, I'm not finding an overlook here. So I stop at the only place, well, we pass a few places that don't seem like stops anymore, but I see what looks like a new family dollar. And so it's like, okay, I'll go into family dollar. And so I go into family dollar and I was like, I'm looking for the overlook. How do I get there? And she goes, you mean George's Mountain? And I was like, I don't know. Like, sure. I just, somebody said the overlook. And she goes, okay, follow this road. And about 30 minutes later, the only thing I can find is a little turnoff that looks like the last people that visited probably were doing drugs. You know, it's like one of those kind of overlooks. That I was like, this is not a real overlook, but I've wasted an hour of my family's life, and we've got an hour to head back. And I get back and come to find out, I know where the overlook is. I know where the mountain is. It's just up from the Walmart around the other way. But you've got to go wet you've got to go the opposite direction then you got to go south then you got to come back around and so that day I didn't know where I was going and I definitely did not know how to get there I was thinking of that story because on Sunday morning after Jesus died the disciples thought they knew where they were going and they thought they knew how to get there but then they wake up and they're like what is going on they, had, they thought they knew what God was up to throughout history. They thought that this is, oh, this is what God is doing. He's going to build us a kingdom, and he's going to set us free from the Romans, and we're going to, be, we're going to have food, and we're not going to be oppressed anymore, and we're going to have peace, and God is going to dwell with us. They thought they knew what God was up to, and they thought they knew the way. They had even spent three years with Jesus, and they wake up Easter morning, and they find we did not know what God was up to. And we did not know what was coming next. I wonder how many of us today, on Easter morning, 2,000-something years later, I wonder how many of us don't know what's coming next. We thought we did. We thought we knew what this next season of our lives was going to be like. And we thought we knew what we were going to do next. But we come here together on a Sunday morning and we're like, um, what? God, what are you doing? We, you, we thought we knew what retirement would be like. And maybe, and you lost your spouse, and you're like, okay, all the plans I had are shot. Now what comes next? You, you thought you had all of these plans in your family, and your kids grew up, and they moved away, and now you go, what, what are we doing? Maybe it's medical, maybe it's financial, maybe it's your work. But I wonder how many of us come on Sunday morning and are like, God, what comes next? Where do we go from here? Today I want to show you two verses from Luke 
where Jesus lays it all out for the disciples who come to Easter morning thinking that they knew what was going on, finding out, finding themselves disoriented, not knowing what steps to take next. And Jesus says, let me tell you what's going on and where we go from here. Go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24. We're going to focus in on verses 46 and 47. Jesus has already appeared to the women that came to the tomb. They have run and told the disciples. The disciples have run to the tomb. Jesus walks on the road to Emmaus with two of the disciples. And then now he comes and is with with his 11 disciples. Judas is not there. He shows them his hands and his feet. He shows them the scar that's in his side. Verse 45 says, Then he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. Everything that came before, they did not understand because their minds were dark. And this is verse 46 and 47. He told them, Jesus told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in His name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Let's pray. God, as we gather here today, some of us doubt, some of us wonder, some of us proudly try to run our own lives and make things happen the way that we want them to. I pray that today you will stop us with the demands of Easter. And that you will set us on your direction. In Jesus' name, amen. Here in these two verses, I think Jesus faces us with with the four demands of Easter. Demand is not a word that we use a whole lot. Maybe it's our culture. Maybe it's just our own hearts. We don't like to be demanded. But Jesus faces the disciples with four demands. And I want to show you here today these four ways that Jesus calls us to respond to Easter. First, Jesus says, look to what God has done. Look to what God has done. Look at the beginning of verse 46. Jesus told them, this is what is written. Jesus, we can just kind of blow past those words. Like, okay, there, there are prophecies. But these words mean that God has been up to something leading up to Easter. The Easter was not plan B, was not an oops, not a let me make a, a, a good situation out of a bad situation. Let me try and turn something bad into something good. Jesus tells the disciples, look at what God has been doing. Because the scriptures say that the Messiah will. Jesus is pointing us to the fact that God has been up to something. And the Old Testament is not God trying a few different plans and none of them quite working out. So, well, let me try a new plan and I'll send the Son. Jesus says that God has been doing something all along leading up to this moment. And Jesus, I think, is calling us to stare at this truth and say, God has been at work. God is doing something. Not something is happening to God and He's trying to make something of it. 
Easter demands that we not just go, oh, okay, sometimes bad things happen and God uses them. No, this Easter says that God looks at the world and says, I am going to do something. We see all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. We see that before God curses Eve, before God curses Adam, God promises that he will fix the problem that they have created, introducing sin into the world. We see the promise in Genesis chapter 3 that he will one day crush the serpent's head. Romans picks that up where, say, uh, where Paul, tells the, Paul tells the church, God will soon crush the enemy under your feet. God has been up to something since Genesis chapter 3 that God has been at work and He has been pointing to the fact that one day the son of Adam and the son of Abraham and the son of Isaac and the son of Jacob, the son of Judah, one day God is going to send a son of David who's better than David and better than Solomon because God is up to something. And so this calls to you and I and says, God has been at work in your life. And Easter proves it. God has been at work in your life and Easter is proof that He's been at work. He doesn't just prove it because, oh, okay, I I gave some food. I gave you a parking spot here and there when you prayed for it and you needed it. I gave you fish when you're out fishing on the lake and you, you prayed, God, can I catch a good fish today? No, Easter proves that God has been up to something in your life to work for and to save you. And so, the first demand of Easter is that we look and see what God is doing. That God is at work at Easter. Not simply Pilate. Not simply the soldiers. Not simply the high priest or the soldiers of the Jewish leaders. It's not the mob. It's not Judas. God has been at work and Easter proves it. You see, the Old Testament is not a standalone first try. It is the story of God at work. On Sunday evenings, we've seen in 2 Peter, just where Peter is like, devote yourself to the Old Testament because it is the story of God and what He has been doing in His people to save them and to change them and to glorify Himself. And bring us to the promised place. You see, the Old Testament is both the prophecy of what God has done and a picture of how He is constantly at work pursuing people that reject Him and turn away from Him and love other things more than they love Him. And so the Old Testament and the whole Bible is this story that says, look, God is at work, not simply people at work. And so today here at Easter, this is a call to you and I that God is working even in the darkest moments. Many of us know what's going on in each other's lives. I know some of you have been walking in the last several months through dark things. Some of you are like, God, where are you in this place? Some of us have been walking through difficult and dark things for the last several years, maybe the last 10 years. Easter demands that we look and see that even in the darkest moments, God is at work doing something. And Easter is proof of it. So will we today slow down in the Easter egg hunts and the family meals 
And will we slow down in the, the day off that many get tomorrow and say, God, even in the loss of my home, you were intending something. God, even in the loss of my job, you were at work there too. God, even in the dark, dark moments where people have hurt me deeply, will we slow down and say, God, you were at work there too. And Easter is proof of it. God, even in the hospital rooms and the gravesides, God, even in the funeral homes, God, even in the, uh, the time that I'm alone again as a widower or a widow, that you at Easter prove that you are at work. Will we stop what we're doing and look at what God has done? I want to show you the second demand of Easter. Second demand of Easter is acknowledge the, your problem. Look at verse 46. Then he told him, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer. Maybe your translation says Christ. Christ and Messiah. Christ is the Greek word. Messiah is the Hebrew word. Both of them are the word for the anointed one, the deliverer that God has promised. And in that line where he says the deliverer will suffer, that tells us that what the deliverer is going to do, the deliverer is going to suffer and die. And this is important because the remedy points us to the problem. He doesn't say the deliverer is going to come with a sword and deliver you from the Romans. He doesn't say the deliverer is going to come with an unlimited treasure chest to provide everything that you imagine. He doesn't say that the deliverer is going to come so that everybody thinks well of you. He doesn't say the deliverer is going to come with an uh, unlimited supply of self-esteem to give out. He says the deliverer is going to come to suffer. The remedy points us that the problem that we face is there is only suffering in front of us unless the, the deliverer does something about it. It takes suffering and death and resurrection to deliver us, which points us to the problem is it's not out there, it's something in here. It's the future that you and I each face with that we stand before God as sinners, guilty with no way to deal with it. Jesus is calling us to acknowledge the problem that we have that required a deliverer to come and suffer. Not a deliverer to come and institute a new government. Not a deliverer with a better plan for jobs and economics. Not a deliverer to come with unlimited supply of money. But a deliverer to come and deal with the suffering that is in front of you and I. You see, in Jesus' day, the answers that they had are that the problem in our world is either the, the outsiders, the Romans. If those Romans were just gone, we'd be okay. If, if those Romans were gone, it would be okay. That's what the zealots, that's what the, the insurrectionists, they would form bands, they would get their, they would get their weapons, and they would do whatever they could to fight and to throw off the Romans. That had happened before in Jewish history, in between the end of the Old Testament, Malachi, and the beginning of Matthew. There are stories of sometimes they set up a temporary kingdom. And they looked and go, if we could just do that again. If we could just find a leader that would help us throw off the Romans. 
Others in Jesus' day, like the Pharisees, were like, it's the sinners. If we could just get some of those sinners to stop sinning, we'd be okay. So they'd make up rules. They would make up more and more and more rules to protect God's laws because they're just like, if we could just get all of you sinners out there to stop sinning, then we're going to be okay. The answers that they had in that day were it's everybody else. But this verse tells us that Jesus has to come and suffer in the place of sinners because you and I are the problem. It's not our neighbors. It's not our kids. It's not our parents. It's not our co-workers. It's not the sinners out there. It's not those that are in power over us. The problem when we stand before God is that we're the problem. That somebody has to save people like me. Not just them. Get them to stop. It's if, if I could be changed. If I could be set free. This Easter demands... Not only that we look to see what God is, has done and is doing, but that we would look in the mirror and say, what's the problem with the world? I am the problem. What's the problem in my family? I'm the problem in my family. What's the problem at my workplace? I'm the problem at my workplace. Our hearts deceive us, but Easter says the Messiah, the Deliverer, will suffer. He will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. I want to show you the third way, the, the third demand of Easter. The third demand of Easter is that we respond in Jesus' way. Look at verse 47. Jesus has already said, the, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And then verse 47, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached. The, the response that Jesus calls for is repentance. And outside of the church, I don't know of anybody that uses the word repentance. That's just, I can't think of any context in which somebody would use the word repentance. And so maybe you're going, what do you mean repentance? That's not something that somebody would say at my job. That's not something that we really use in school. That's not really something that we would see on TV or on the internet. What is this repentance that Jesus is speaking of? Repentance is a word that means to change your mind. It means to change your mind, to go from I've been thinking this way and living this way with myself as the center of the world, and I'm going to turn and look at Jesus. There's a couple ways that we sometimes live lives that need repentance. We're a little bit more familiar with somebody who's, who's living a life that says, God, I don't care about your laws. I don't care what you think. I am not going to live your way. I'm going to sleep with whoever I want to. I'm going to lie. I'm going to cheat. I'm going to steal. I'm going to be bitter and angry. I'm going to cut people down with my words. I'm going to be proud. I'm going to be selfish. I'm going to be greedy. I'm going to do whatever I want. That's the kind that we're a lot more familiar with. Usually most of us have pet things in that category that we say that's the really bad stuff and then that's the stuff that I'm guilty of. But the, we know the kind of person that is turned away from God and says, I do not care about you or your laws and I will not live your way. But the Bible tells us that there's another kind of a life that needs repentance. It's the kind that's a lot safer because it's the kind that is proud and this is God, I will manipulate you and keep you at bay by keeping your rules. I am going to be proud and selfish. And I am, going to be, I am going to be so excited that I'm not like everybody else. 
That's the kind that's a lot safer to be in the church, where we still keep God away because we manipulate him and say, God, look at all I have done. I read my Bible. I give to the church. Maybe I've been baptized. I serve. I do all of these different things in my family. Look at how good I am. God, you owe me. That's the kind of safe living that needs repentance in the church too. The response that Jesus is calling his church to is repentance for the forgiveness of sin in his name. Jesus is saying the only response to Easter is actually to acknowledge that I'm the problem in my pride, in my anger, in my bitterness, in my selfishness. And turn and trust in Jesus alone. That's what that word, where he says forgiveness will be preached in his name. Turning from living for ourselves and living for and trusting in Jesus alone to save us and following him as Lord. That's what the response that Jesus is calling us to. He's saying turn from that way of living and trust in Jesus. Every other way is a false way. Anybody who says do all of these things so God will love you is lying to you or deceived. The Christian life is not like, look at how hard I try. It's look at how hard Jesus tried in my place. Look at how hard Jesus, and so I love Him and I follow Him. I will will follow Him anywhere. Not because I need Him to, to love me for what I do, but I love Him for what He has done in my place. That's the only response Jesus gives to Easter to His disciples. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. When the kids, well, several of the kids were little. Jake was just born. We moved to Kentucky so I could go to seminary again. We found that you guys, well, many of you know, I love apples. And so we found an orchard and we would go to that orchard in season, like all the time. They actually had peaches too. So starting in June, we were out at this orchard all of the time. And then when the time was right, they made a corn maze. And I was like, oh, that'll be fun. So let's go do the corn maze. So it's my day off. And I think it was a Thursday. Nobody else is there. And we decided to do the corn maze. Jake is under two. You know, Micah's like three, three to almost four, probably at least five. And so we decided to go through the corn maze. And we keep going through the corn maze. And we keep going through the corn maze. And we keep going through the corn maze. And we are like, is there any exit? Is it like, what are we doing here? We just keep going in circles and in circles and in circles. And so finally, we're like, oh, well, we eventually just have to get out. And so we decide to go back to the entrance again. And then go around to find where the exit is so we can figure out what did we do wrong? I don't know, some of you guys, I mean, corn mazes, that the idea is it's supposed to be hard, and it's so, so great. Well, I'm in my 30s, and I have three young kids, and I'm like, what kind of corn maze is this that I can't even figure this out? And so we go to the end, and we realize the corn has grown up at the end. It doesn't look like an end anymore. You go to the end, and you look down, and you go, the corn is just the same as it is everywhere else. Only when you know, oh, this is where the ending is, Could we like actually go through the maze the correct way and this time go, I know this looks like a wall, but this is actually the way out. I know that this looks like it's not it, but we've seen the end. This is the way out. And so finally, this corn maze was not, it wasn't that it was so long. 
or that we're so stupid. It's that we had no idea this is actually the way out. In the same way, this passage says that repentance doesn't seem like the way out, right? Like if we were to make up a way to be made right with God, it would be doing stuff. And Jesus is like, no, repent and trust in my name alone to be saved. Go to the finish line right here. Go go to the finish line. Don't try to make your own way out. Don't try to figure this out. Trust me, this is the exit. Repent and trust in Jesus. And so maybe you're here today, and for the very first time, you need to repent and trust in Jesus alone to save you. You have thought, maybe you've lived a life that just said, hey, I'm going to do my own thing. God, I don't care about you. Or maybe you've said, God, can I just undo all of the bad stuff that I've done? To both of those, say enough of that and take Jesus Let today be the day of salvation where you repent of your sin and trust in Jesus only to save you and then realize here's the way out. Let today be the day. If you today have questions about that, grab me. You can come talk to me while we sing at the end of the service. You can grab me while we're in the hallway. Grab somebody that brought you and say, I want to be delivered. I want to respond in the way that Jesus has said. Let today be the day that you respond in Jesus' way. And I want to show you the fourth way. I'm sorry, the fourth demand of Easter today. The fourth demand of Easter is believe the promise of Jesus. Look at verse 47. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Here, Jesus says the promise of Easter. For those that respond in Jesus' way is your sins are put away. Completely away. The guilt is gone. There is none left. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It is a call to you and I. If we have trusted in Jesus, is to believe that he meant it and that he secured it and that it's ours. If you're like me, it's so easy to go through life and think of all of the stuff that we would do over if we could. I wish I could, if I could go through that again, I would... I would respond differently. Even today, I was thinking of, I wish I could go back. I would respond to him so differently. I wish I could do it. I wish I could fix X, Y, and Z. I wish I... But Jesus says that if you are in Christ and you respond simply with open hands, believing in the name of Jesus, then you are actually forgiven. Will you believe this Easter that you're forgiven? Forgiven for the sinful anger? Forgiven for all of the missteps and all the mistakes? Will you believe that all of the guilt, because you didn't respond the way you wanted to and the way you should have, will, will you... What I'm trying to say is that Easter is a call to go free. Christianity can so easily start to heap more guilt on us like you didn't do this right and 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 Jesus gets to Easter and says if you will repent and believe in me you can go free. You can go free. And so the Christian life becomes a life lived from freedom and from forgiveness not for forgiveness. We know better but I have heard so many Christians weighed down thinking, oh, 
there's just so many things that I don't do right. And Jesus says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and be forgiven and accepted, and then go and live in that. One of my favorite quotes, Emma made it on a uh, coaster for me a number of years ago, has to do with how does God feel about us? Right? We, we go through and we think, God has the same regrets about me that I do. God sees the way that I speak to my family, and he hates it too. God sees the way that I respond to slander and hates it too. God sees the sinful anger that seethes underneath the surface, and he hates it too. But if the gospel is true and forgiveness is true, if justification is true, this is what John Owen says. That God's heart is glad in us without sorrow. And every day while we live is his wedding day. If the gospel is true, then when God looks at you, he does not see the mistakes and all of the disappointments and all of the tripping and falling and the not doing better. Instead, he looks and sees this is the happiest day of my life. I'm glad she's coming. I'm glad that he's here. I love that. I'm going to read the quote again, one of my favorites, because I think this is the truth of Easter that sink, needs to sink in to some of our hearts today, is we feel like God is so disappointed with us. But if, if the gospel is true, then this is true. His heart is glad in us without sorrow, and every day while we live is his wedding day. So will you believe the promise of Jesus this Easter? Will you believe the promise of Jesus this Easter and not the lies and accusations of Satan? That you're completely forgiven and completely free if you're in Christ. Imagine how that would change if you actually were like, oh, I am completely forgiven and completely set free. The, the real me that struggles with sinful anger. The, the real me that's very judgmental and bitter and angry. God, you're, you're forgiving and setting free. The, person, the one who's an enslaved to my own desires, my own pleasures physical pleasures, addictions. You love and forgive this guy, this girl. Completely forgiven and free. And so today, here at Easter, this is a call. Easter is a, a call. It's a demand even to respond to Jesus' gift. Don't make it a job. Don't think, okay, now this is a work that I have to do. This is a work I have to do. I have to fix this. Jesus says, repent and believe and accept the free forgiveness of God at Easter and then go free. I want you to imagine what changes in your life when you realize that God is the one who's up to something and Easter proves it. I want you to imagine what happens in your life when you acknowledge, look in the mirror and realize this person is the, is the problem, not her, not him. Not the situation. Uh, imagine what changes when you respond in Jesus' way and that you actually deep down in your heart believe the promise of Jesus that you're forgiven and free. Imagine what happens in your home. Imagine what happens at your work when your work doesn't change, but you're changed. Imagine you, you realize God is at work in this workplace too with me. This one, this one, he set me free, forgiven and free to go to work. 
to do whatever he has called me to do, but not for righteousness, but from righteousness. Imagine what happens in our church when, when we are a church that is constantly responding to the demands of Easter and walking in the promise that we're forgiven and free. Imagine what changes in our community when our church is dominated by this reality that the God of all the universe solves problems like us and he welcomes sinners simply through repentance and faith. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the demands of Easter. That they are not burdensome. They are instead gifts and calls to walk in freedom. God, I pray that those here today who have never walked the path that you have called us to, repentance and faith, would do that. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would work on their hearts, causing them to to forsake themselves and hope in Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that we would walk in freedom this Easter. In Jesus' name, amen.